The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Francis Watch on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today is His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Seminary Professor and Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, Father, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here as usual, Stephen. Well, we are back at it again. You thought that you were going to have some time off, and you did. But uh, Francis never takes any time off, and he's been busy since November the 21st, which was the last Francis watch that you recorded for last season with Dan Fitton. And as I said to you uh, in our weeks leading up to the show, there's not going to be any shortage of material. As Bishop Sanborn says, it's always the same old, same old, but it doesn't... um, it doesn't mean that we uh, shouldn't continue to comment, especially now, thanks to Novus Ordo Watch's sponsorship, a lot more people are going to be hearing this on a regular basis. So we are going to start with actions that have been happening, as we said, since November the 21st. And the first one that I want to talk about is the fact that communist bishops have been given some kind of preference in China I know that His Excellency wrote an article about uh, some some comments about how Chinese socialism has been successful. Your Excellency, would you like to speak about this issue, the Vatican asking the legitimate bishops to step aside in, in favor of the illegitimate ones? Well, it's a complete sellout to the communist regime. In 1949, the communists set up a parallel Catholic church, so to speak, uh, that was approved by the government and where people would get sanitized uh, propaganda from uh, their priests. And there was always then an underground Catholic church in China. And it has functioned ever since, uh, this underground church. And to and Pius XII was the one that excommunicated any bishop that would be consecrated for the communist church. Uh, and uh, so, you know, this is a total reversal uh, the uh, it is to, to cave in to a, an evil regime and uh, a regime that represses Catholicism. Uh, what else can you say about it? Uh, anything that I said about the success of socialism in China is is simply that uh, well, for one reason, they are the manufacturing arm of the United States. In other words, they have a lot of jobs because the United States buys a tremendous amount of stuff from them. So that's one reason why it's a quote-unquote success. The other is that they have introduced, as Lenin did, some elements of capitalism. They even apparently have private property now. But you know, socialism as a system, as an economic system, has repeatedly failed in the past. It's only when there is uh, you know, a, a limitation upon the socialism that you get some success out of it. But even in those socialist countries like France and 
uh, many other European countries. I mean, the taxes are so oppressive and there's so much government interference that you can hardly do anything. The other thing to be noted is uh, with this agreement is that it seems in the practical order to have gotten them next to nothing. Uh, after the um, uh, word of the initial agreement came out, there were some articles that uh, appeared by Sandro Magister in Espresso, which is the um, fairly prominent Italian newspaper, saying that the Chinese had introduced in February some new policies that were even more oppressive, that uh, young people cannot be brought into these churches. The article showed before and after photos of a uh, church in, a, I think it was in Shanghai, where the religious symbols had to be removed from the outside and the crosses taken down. Formerly it had statues and crosses and, and a dome and all of these uh, had to go. And the point of the writer of the article was, uh, see, this is what agreeing, what agreeing with him gets you. Another interesting thing is that just today there was another article in Espresso saying that this process had been uh, started 30 years ago under the supposed um, great anti-communist JP2, where the president of, of Italy, maybe it was just an Italian politician then, Giulio Andreotti, and another uh, fellow, um, some sort of an Italian diplomat, went to visit China, and they were charged by the Vatican. Archbishop Silvestrini was the name of the Vatican diplomat to um, uh, try to uh, enter into some sort of a compromise with the communist Chinese government. There's pictures of one of these diplomats sitting with the uh, premier of China, uh, at that time was uh, uh, Peng, something like that. Chuan Lai? No, it was, it was Ding Xiaopeng. He was the guy who looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And he, 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 he didn't reign for very long, but that's what I remember about him. But uh, so this sort of thing has been in the works, uh, you know, under the, uh, under the table actually for uh, quite a while. And now apparently it's coming to fruition and bitter fruit it is. They also have the policy of turning away, you have the, the church must turn away anyone under 18. That's a new policy that the, the Chinese government has put in. So, you know, this is a complete sellout to the persecutors of the Catholic Church. Yeah. That's the only way to put it. I was looking at that photo that you were referencing, Father, about the, they call it the sinicization of the church, and the quote is that the cross represents a foreign religious infiltration. That's what the government says. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's that's what you're going to get from them. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you're dealing with communists. Yes. The next uh, news item that again we're catching up on many months of Francis's uh, actions. We have communion for adulterers now formalized in the ACTA. Now, before we, we get into that, Father Chicada, could you explain to our listeners what the ACTA is and what its force has? Okay. The ACTA Apostolici Sedis is the official Vatican publication. It looks like a uh, sort of a quarterly that uh, would come out paper bound. And theoretically, it comes out every month. And it is the publication in which official Vatican documents, pronouncements, and laws are promulgated. 
So if, if something is, uh, it's, it's one thing, as it were, in normal times, if a pope says something from the balcony, but it's another, uh, it gives it a little bit more force all the time if it actually appears in the octa, because then it becomes official. So that's the Octa Apostolici Sedis, and that's the Vatican journal that's used for promulgating officially Vatican laws, decrees, uh, documents. So we have the, the Buenos Aires guidelines as well as Francis's endorsement for those in the Buenos Aires guidelines were things laid down by the bishops in terms of interpreting Amoris Laetitia. They appear in the October 2016 edition of the Acta Apostolici Sedis. So Your Excellency, doesn't this make this official church doctrine? Well, uh, it... it well, you know, let's put it in the context of the Novus Ordo. I mean, in a normal time, if that appeared, uh, it is encyclical and it appears in, in the Acta Apostolice Sedis, yes, that, that is what you would call authentic magisterium. And he put, uh, there was a rescript that was also in there indicating that this is authentic magisterium. So he put his signature essentially on that as authentic magisterium. And that means it is papal magisterium, which is not necessarily solemn. It could be solemn, but it is not necessarily solemn, but that it requires what we call religious assent, that you have to give assent to this uh, under pain of sin. And so this, yes, it becomes the part of the official record of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, if we assume for a second falsely that he is a true pope. In other words, the... Uh, it, it, so what it does is it wreaks havoc in the minds of the Novus Ordo conservative. For us, it means nothing. It's just one more nail in his coffin as far as being a false pope. But for the Novus Ordo conservative who is agonizing his way through making sense and making Catholicism out of the Novus Ordo, this is a terrible wound because he cannot defend it. This is a defection from the faith to permit these things. And here it is in the Acta. That means it's permanent record of the Catholic Church. It cannot be ignored. It cannot be simply something that you blow off because, you know, he said it one day and we can forget about it the next day. So they really have a problem. And all through this reign, this so-called reign, uh, they have had more and more problems uh, dealing with him. And so you're seeing uh, even among them... a an admission that this is a deviation from, from the faith, which is significant. But they're not doing anything about it. They are simply complaining about it. And as I say, the hand-wringing and the eye-rolling is their way of expiation of these things. It's the way they cleanse themselves of these things, that they complain about it, this is not good, etc. But nobody or very few have drawn the obvious conclusion that this man is not the Pope. Otherwise, you have to say that the church is defected. Uh, and they try to, um, they ignored or they tried to uh, deny the principle that uh, really you have to have any sort of assent to authentic magisterium. So they deny, uh, they end up denying the underlying principle that uh, we as Catholics really have to accept that the Pope, even if it's not, um, 
even if what he says is uh, not ex cathedra and is not strictly speaking universal ordinary magisterium or doesn't enjoy all those notes, that still he has special assistance from the Holy Ghost and Catholics have to assent to it. So you, you have some who tried to get rid of that principle to avoid this, but it's, as His Excellency said, it's getting harder and harder because in the octa, you know, that's, again, it's, it's the bell that can't be unrung. You know, it's, it's official stuff now. And if you're intellectually coherent, you have to deal with it. Well, His Excellency pointed out that there was a rescript, and the exact text, which is dated June the 5th, 2017, reads, The Supreme Pontiff decreed that the two preceding documents be promulgated through publication on the Vatican website and in Acta Apostolice Sedis as authentic magisterium. So even if they dismiss the other two documents, how do they dismiss the rescript? Yeah, it's impossible. And the rescript is an official document. So in other words, it's the, uh, uh, something like that doesn't uh, exist in civil law, but in canon law, papal law, the idea is that this is an official response. And because it doesn't have the, um, um, uh, you know, the scaly paw print of uh, Bergoglio on it, and it's signed by some cardinal, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's an image for you, uh, the 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 secretary of snake or whatever is going to. Uh, this is how it works in the Vatican that you have a cardinal who issues this in the name of the Pope. So it's not you you can't um, uh, you can't really uh, get out of it. No, that means it 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 takes its place side by side with the Pascendi of Saint Pius X. Yeah. And other great documents it's side by side. Uh, there it is. And, and, you know, it's all one big happy Catholicism, you see. And so the Novus Order conservatives are, are facing this problem. But again, they don't do anything. Look, those bishops in, uh, in Uzbekistan or whatever, Kazakhstan, you know, they said this is a deviation from the faith. They did not drop the H-bomb, which is the heresy bomb, the word heresy. <laughs> But, you know, why not? Deviation from the faith? This is against the, the Sixth Commandment? What else do you need? Yeah. And then nothing happened. Uh, Cardinal, uh, what's his name? Uh, Burke, you know, his, uh, what happened to him? We haven't heard from him. And so those are examples of, of you know, they, they think that they are doing their duty toward the Catholic faith by saying these things and that they're rectifying the whole thing by saying that this is really wrong. But they are not. Their interventions will be long forgotten, and that document and that rescript will stay in that Acta Apostolice Sedis forever, until the end of the world. As a matter of fact, they accuse themselves because they are inactive. They, you know, they are the ones that should be doing something, and they actually accuse themselves of their inactivity. Well, you're making reference to the Novus Ordo Conservatives, Your Excellency, and I think that that point's well taken, but what about the recognize and resist crowd? I, I have a quote here from the remnant of December the 4th, 2017. Hence, Amoris Laetitia, Chapter 8, which proposes that people living in adultery can be guiltless and thus be admitted to the sacraments of confession and communion when, quote, concrete circumstances, unquote, make it difficult to renounce their adulterous state, is now declared magisterial by the Holy See. 
The problem with this is that heresy or sacrilege can never be declared magisterial, so that if it is, it not only has no binding force, but the faithful are obliged to resist and refute such a declaration. St. Thomas Aquinas says in his Summa, if the faith were endangered, a subject ought to rebuke his prelate, and they put Pope, even publicly. So how about, how about that? Does that get you, Your Excellency? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah it really you know, makes a lot of we, sense. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, th that whole position of sifting the magisterium for finding out what is Catholic and what is not Catholic, which is exactly the term of Archbishop Lefebvre, is it's very gravely erroneous if it is not heretical to say that we are not obliged to accept the magisterium of the church and that we can sift it and reject it as we will. It is very, very grave, and it is at least sinful, at the very least sinful. And, you know, this qualifies, I think, for ordinary universal magisterium, because except for a few bishops, maybe, everybody promulgated that document. All of the bishops in the world practically promulgated that document, which is sufficient for ordinary universal magisterium, which is infallible. So to say that we can just blow that off is actually heretical. You make a good and an interesting point, Your Excellency, because the different dioceses are, uh, at least in the United States, are putting together programs to implement Amoris Laetitia. Yes. And so obviously they, uh, obviously they accept that. They do. Yeah. It was universally promulgated, and for universal promulgation, you don't need an absolute, uh, you know, every single bishop in the whole world. It has to be morally universal. Mm -hmm. Most bishops have to promulgate it, and they have, and they have promulgated that evil interpretation of it, too. Well, and then, but inevitably what you get to, then, is the usual fallacy that you get with Pius X or with uh, Remnant, is that, well, it doesn't correspond to the previous magisterium, so it's not part of the universal ordinary magisterium. So it's the usual nonsense that, uh, you know, you have to, uh, one unfortunately has to speak about all the time, because it is, it is uh, so incorrect, but that's typical of the remnant. You know, they, they whine about something, and they refuse to draw the obvious conclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why we refer to them as Minnesota wine country. You know, that they, <laughs> that and, and bitter wine it is too, with all the complaining they do. They've been doing that for years and they, they never draw the conclusion. The, the wine is not of the best quality in, in Minnesota, Father. Uh, I guess not. I mean, it's well, a little and, cold up there. I mean, and thank goodness we have the remnant here for us to go through all magisterial teachings and make sure that it confirms it. And that way, as a subscriber to the remnant, I'm kept Catholic instead of just following Francis. Well, I think if you're talking remnant and wine, I, I think we should uh, change the name of the magazine from the remnant to the dregs. Because <laughs> it's... it's kind of the bottom of the bottle at least. <laughs> I had not too long ago... Remarks like uh, that get me into trouble, I'm afraid. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I had not too long ago an internet discussion with uh, Mr. Sisko, and it, I mean, not to get into the details of it, but I said, please show me texts from pre-Vatican II theologians which support your 
claim that we can sift the magisterium, that, that we can reject, that, that you don't have ordinary universal magisterium unless you have what is known as temporal continuity, that is continuity yeah. over time. Please show me theologians that support that because I have never ever seen that in any book as a definition of ordinary universal magisterium. Now, I am still waiting for a response. That was about three months ago. So you I'm might you might be waiting response. you might be waiting for a while, Your Excellency. Yes, I, 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 to my knowledge, that does not exist, and the only person to come up with it was a certain Shan Juan Berto. That means Canon Berto, in a cone, and in his little treatise on it, there is not a single footnote to support what he says. Yeah. Even though in the other part of the treatise there are many footnotes that he talks about where he talks about other things, but in that part of it there is not a single footnote to support what he says. So this was an invention of a cone in order to reject the universal ordinary magisterium. And I remember Archbishop Lefebvre saying in a conference, Vatican II is not a problem because it's only ordinary magisterium. I remember that. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a product of a cone. It's an invention of a cone. The last two things I'm going to cover in this part of the episode, Your Excellency, are a, a duo of, of doom both Oscar Romero <laughs> and Paul VI to be made saints. Um, for those who don't know who Oscar Romero is, uh, Father Chicada, would you like to enlighten them? Oh, he was a, uh, a bishop in Central America who uh, had a reputation actually as being a leftist and favoring leftist causes and uh, liberation theology, etc. And he was killed by... Uh, I think some right-wing group, uh, supposedly, uh, they killed him. But uh, Romero was always a, he was like the icon of the lefties when we were in the modernist seminaries, that, you know, you couldn't say uh, enough about uh, St. Oscar Romero. So it's kind of no surprise that Bergoglio is uh, going to want to canonize the guy. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I remember him just the way Father Chicada does, uh, that he was the icon of the liberation theologians and, and all of the left. And he was, uh, you know, just that, that's when nuns were being armed and priests were being armed in Central America. Yeah, it was common knowledge, you know, and, and uh, you know, you think of a nun in a nice habit, you know, these were armed, you know, Amazons uh, that were... Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, this was not, they, they were all filled with that stuff, you know, regime change and, and, and things that the church never got involved in, in its glorious past. Uh, even when the church was persecuted, the church condemned the idea of revolting against the persecutors. That was the case of Gregory the Sixteenth in Poland. Uh, and, and other cases. And that's one of the reasons why Pius XI would not support the efforts in Mexico was that it was a, a revolt against the regime, even a persecuting regime. And the church never did that. It never wanted to be associated with revolution. And so that was a, you know, that, that, that whole idea of, of religious being in favor of revolution and all is totally alien to the Catholic Church. Well, in addition to Romero, obviously, we also have Paul VI. And Francis in mid-February confirmed that Paul VI would become a saint and during the announcement, he joked that he and Benedict are on the waiting list. So 
I find it fascinating. St. Pius X was our first Pope Saint in 500 years, and now we have a bounty, an ever, a, a never-ending bounty. I'm just, there's so much holiness, Your Excellency, I can't keep up. <laughs> it's just overpowering. Uh, well, obviously the criterion is how much you contributed to the destruction of the Catholic Church. Yeah. That's the criterion of getting canonized. So Paul VI, I mean, he, he was a major contributor. He should have been done first, even before John Twenty-Third. And so, of course, JP too, I mean, he, he, you know, for years, I mean, he just destroyed the church you know, wholesale. And, but Ratzinger and especially Francis, I mean, they, they should be, you know, you know, santo subito. I mean, he, he has done more than all of his predecessors to destroy the church. I mean, why, why wait In for him way. to die? Your Excellency, I mean, yes, I, why, why not? Right why not have it done now? And that way, he can supervise the process Absolutely. himself. Absolutely, but really, those well, the, others. The, I mean, <laughs> the other uh, end of this is, of course, Bergoglio has a theology that no one really goes to hell; that it's not eternal anyway, and so you just sort of get zapped. Yes, if you've been bad in this life. Yes, and so basically, everyone, I guess, including little doggies, go to heaven. So why not the um, uh, you know why not the big dog of the revolution, Paul VI? Right. So yes, but really you know we're, we're everyone is you know uh, sees Bergoglio as the radical, but he is really just following all of the example of his predecessors, his Vatican II predecessors. Uh, you know they really did all the damage. He's just putting the crown on it. He's putting the icing on the cake, but the cake was baked by Paul VI and John Paul II. Principally, and it was prepared by John the Twenty Third. So, really, you can see the criterion is how much they destroy the church. They need to canonize these people because Vatican II is a terrible failure. Yeah. We'll see later that seventy-four percent of people between ten and twenty leave the church. How's that for a statistic? So, it's been a horrible failure, and they've always held up South America as the. Uh, great uh, success of Vatican II, and look at all these people in the churches. Well, South America is going downhill quickly, and people are converting to Protestantism a great deal, and the numbers there are starting to show a great deal of of corruption and and decline. So they can't even hold that up now. So the whole thing is is a total failure. The seminaries are closed, and you know, the convents, all of those huge institutions are, are gone. And, uh, you know, you have these crazy liturgies. Nobody takes it seriously, especially young people who see through things very easily. Uh, they're just not interested. So, but so you have to canonize these people to show that what they did was right. See, Vatican II is good and right. You see, and if there's a problem, give another dose of Vatican II, like a big hypodermic needle, another wham, another dose of Vatican II, and that will make it, Make it right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, uh, Your Excellency, even among the secular press, there's starting to be a little bit of pushback here that even the seculars are thinking, you, you can't be serious that all these men are saints. And there's that push for JP1, I think we saw late last year. So that way we'll have an unbroken line of saints leading us from Vatican II yes. into the bright, glorious future of the new springtime. Yes, yeah, that's the uh, JP one. Uh, he really deserves it because he was the one that made the statement concerning religious liberty that the church was wrong in the past concerning religious liberty. <laughs> he blurted that out. I remember that 
And I wonder, I mean, there's a lot of questions about how he died, but I wonder if he was not a Bergoglio, but a, a Bergoglio that was too early. He was, he was too Bergoglio that, for his time? Yes, he was too Bergoglio yeah. for his time, yeah. and that they needed to get rid of him, because at that time, you could have still seen quite easily a reversal of Vatican II at that time. That was 1978. That's right, yeah. It was still very fresh, and there were a lot of people that you know were of the let's say the old church, and and uh, you could have seen it, and I think they were very concerned about it at the time. And don't forget, at the 1978 conclave, Siri was supposed to be uh, he actually the next day would have been elected. This is according to that Chicago priest. What was his name? Uh, th- the uh, the year of three popes. He said, "Now this is according really? to him." Greeley, yeah. and he had good sources that he was supposed to pass because the left was split between uh, two that could not pass because there was a split. And the left went around the night before knocking on doors saying, vote for Wojtyla. He was the, he's the one that will, will carry on the, the left-wing ideas of the church and you know the whole program of Vatican II to defeat Siri. Uh, who would have, uh, you know, who knows what he would have done. But he certainly would have done a lot, I think, to overturn the effects of Vatican II, probably. They were certainly concerned about it. So at that point, it was critical. Uh, And so I think that when he started to be sort of irresponsible with his mouth, we're talking about JP1, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he had been knocked off. But you you just never know. You never know. Well, I mean, the man was definitely a radical, Your Excellency. I mean, he he abolished, he abolished, well, abolished. He didn't have, he wasn't crowned. He didn't have a coronation. And he was the first person ever to go with two names as a pope. And who did he pick? The saintly John Twenty-Third and saintly Paul VI, according to the Novus Ordo. Yeah, that was a sign that that there was a new church, and those were this is the church of John and of Paul, and to say John Paul. He also, Your Excellency, had a um, he had publicly made statements um, criticizing Humanae Vitae and in favor of artificial contraception. Yes, as and cardinal these, of uh, Venice. Yes. Yes, and he was uh, apparently uh, heavily involved also with the Pentecostals. So, I mean, he seemed to be the type of guy who was really on board for doing something radical, but I think it's probably one of those cases where, uh, as I think Cramner said of someone during the, the English uh, uh, revolt, that uh, someone, he, he doth run ahead too fast. And yes, uh, I think yes, that was the J- so. JP1 thing, yeah. Yes, uh, I always compare Paul VI to Robespierre, and... John Paul II to Napoleon. Yes. Robespierre designed the revolution and operated the revolution. Napoleon spread it all over Europe, but gave it a certain uh, respectability. You know, he was a monarch. He put on all the nice robes and he was an emperor. And there was uh, there was an air of respectability to the Jacobinism of the French Revolution in Napoleon. And that's what JP II did for the revolution in the church. Hmm. And then, uh, then there was Ratzinger, who, you know, is is probably the most radical of all of them down deep. In other words, you know, he put on the beautiful shoes and everything, but don't forget that he permitted birth control devices. Now we talk about Bergoglio today about adultery, but he permitted birth control devices, which is contrary to the natural law and contrary to the teaching of the church. 
And nobody says that. I mean, that is just you know, glossed over, that, that is hidden under the shadow of his mitre. You know, and, 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 and as a theologian, he was, uh, you know, the, the most radical of theologians. I mean, he's, he denies the, the resurrection of the dead. So for that, he'll be canonized, no doubt, no doubt, because he did so many horrid things. And then, you know, Bergoglio, he should be done today. I mean, he should just be hailed today because he has destroyed the church, you know, in so many ways. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the interesting thing on that point, Your Excellency, is that uh, just a day or two ago, I read an article by a convert to the Catholic faith who's written quite a bit, a woman named Hillary White, who, uh, in fact, I think she actually was a remnant contributor. And she apparently is a little more of an independent thinker, but she said that now is the time really to denounce Benedict because uh, of, uh, in fact, because of his radical ideas that we've been fooled by him and mm -hmm. that he's responsible for um, uh, the continued destruction and the way that things are falling apart. So the, uh, this came up over the, um, in the controversy over this letter that Ratzinger supposedly oh, yes. uh, wrote, yeah, appro uh, approving you know the the, the uh, thoughts of uh, the empty-headed Bergoglio. So there was a controversy over this, it, where he and, said he never uh, read it or he didn't read the stuff or something like that. Like, I, he said that well, you know, he was sort of physically in bad shape and didn't know whether he could get around to reading it or something. <laughs> but <laughs> it all has the stamp of the, approval. Uh, yeah, it has a, a but, uh, you know, he didn't say it was chloroform in print, but, <laughs> you know, that was kind of the idea. Right. So, uh, but, uh, so she wrote this article as a uh, reaction. It's on the Remnant website. Mm -hmm. And then we get, as usual, the whining introduction from Michael <laughs> Matt. You know, whether Benedict uh, actually wrote this letter or not, it gives rise to a number of grave questions yes. that need to be answered rather urgently before history closes the book on this Commedia Diabolica. Uh, you know, so... Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the eternal refuge uh, is, is, well, it's a phony, you know, or it's, it's for... Yes, so, that's yeah, right. It's the yeah, eternal yeah. refuge. <laughs> yes, and... Uh, you know, like, uh, that there's that there's the that that double who's who's yes. uh, living there. Yes. So. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> but more could be said. But we have other interesting stuff to go to. So. Yes. Very unfortunately, we do have more, Father. And I'm going to move on to the Our Father needing to be changed because the translation's no good. Thankfully, Bergoglio, with his wealth of linguistic knowledge, is here to help us with that. Father, do you want to let our listeners know about this story? Well, I think I will pass to Bishop Sanborn because he's more of the scripture maven than I am, and I'm sure that he's covered this very well in his course. Yeah, well, it's uh, the problem is uh, in the Latin Our Father uh, and in the English, and lead us not into temptation, the fact that it could be interpreted as God being the author of leading you into temptation. See, that's the problem. And however, that's exactly what the original Greek says. I mean, the, the translation is exactly that. It certainly means do not permit us to be overcome by temptation. That's the meaning of it. But you cannot change the words in order to fit what 
the meaning is. The words are the words. The words are inspired. You cannot change those things. And so the, the Latin is a perfect translation of the Greek, and the English is a perfect translation of the Greek. So it has to stand the way it is, and it simply has to be explained, as many things in sacred scripture have to be explained. See, God obviously is not the author of evil. He permits us to be tempted for various reasons, either as in order to perfect us or even perhaps to punish us, you know. But, the, but he is never the author of evil. Uh, and so that's what Bergoglio is sort of responding to, is that you could interpret that badly. But it's up to the church to interpret it correctly for the people. And as I said, the sacred scripture is full of things like that where they could easily be misunderstood. That's why the church is the official interpreter of a sacred scripture, and it is not up to people to decide what it means. Well, and again, the implication yeah, so you, the implication is, uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt, Father, the, the, the fact that the church could have been wrong all this time, I think, is the sort of larger question. Well, yes, I mean, the, the, go ahead, Father. Well, you know, that's almost what this 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 uh, empty-headed dunce wants to say, you know, as if the um, as if you can go back and change the words of Holy Scripture, and that the Church has been wrong about it all these years. That certainly is the implication, right? Yes, uh, uh, but I mean, we saw the same it thing. It arises out of his stupidity. Mm-hmm. Yes, always stupidity. Yes, we saw the same thing with promultis. You see, they. They wanted to say, well, you know, for many, that's exclusive. It's not everybody. Uh, and therefore, we're going to change the words of the consecration from for many to for all, because really, that's what we think what it means. Uh, well, finally, under Ratzinger, they admitted that the proper translation is for many. And they actually ordered the change, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know how many abide by it, but they ordered the change that you have to say for many now. And not for all, because that is the sacred scripture. And it, it means what it means. I mean, you have to discover the meaning of that. And, and you know, many theologians have. It refers to the elect, according to St. Thomas Aquinas. And so, uh, but because that's exclusive, and exclusivity is a mortal sin, uh, you have to say for all. So they, they did the same thing. They're fooling around with sacred scripture, which they did in those uh, the lessons at Mass, uh, you know, the uh, Novus Ordo readings that they have it's all you know it's more like bible stories you know the uh, the new american uh, whatever bible and and what they use i mean it's all distorted translations and leaving out certain uh, passages which they find objectionable <laughs> which is typical of heretics of course you know going through sacred scripture and suppressing certain things that that don't fit in with their theology it's typical of heretics they've done it you know since since day one <laughs> One of the things about translation I uh, remember reading is that uh, the uh, translation of, of the, the Douay Reims Bible contained the uh, contained the word "hell" something like you know three hundred times, and the KJV, the King James, contained it you know something like two hundred fifty times, and that the translation that was used at the Novus Ordo contained it only twice. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, uh, you know, they're uh, <laughs> yeah. That says it all. Yeah. 
That says it's, it it's, it, it, it's, it's another application of the saying, you know, the sense of getting the hell out, you know, <laughs> and they, cer they, cert <laughs> they certainly managed to do that uh, instead of taking the advice. So I think they suppressed, correct me if I'm wrong, Father, but certain psalms that were, you know, considered offensive and... Oh Nasty. yeah, I mean one oh eight. Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so they they did that with the breviary mm -hmm. and uh, with the psalms in the breviary, and uh, you know just passage after passage after passage in um, that they're supposed to have in the uh, Novus Ordo this idea of the continuous reading of scripture, which we're supposedly told was ancient. You'd continuously read a passage and then pick it up the next time. But of course, they left out the stuff that they didn't like. Right. And uh, including the passage in the book of the Apocalypse that says that whoever deletes from this book uh, a, a word will be, you know, cut out of the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. You know, so they even managed to get that passage, but I suppose they figured it was a good idea considering what they had actually done. Yes. So. Yes. Like Moses uh, slaying 23,000 people in one day because they worship the golden calf. That's sort of negative. He should have had an ecumenical service at the bottom of the mountain together with the... That golden calves were means of salvation <laughs> yeah. used by the Holy Ghost, I think. Yes, yes. The Holy Ghost... I mean, didn't it was... It was a <coughs> didn't refuse to use that calf. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was a missed opportunity for dialogue with the calf, I think, <laughs> Father, you have to keep that in mind. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but speaking of missed opportunities and would-be saints, Francis also commented that, that Judas might have had a different fate, and this was during one of his uh, innumerable interviews, and he said, but there's one thing that makes me think that Judas's story doesn't end there. And he's implying that it would have gone differently, perhaps, if he'd, he'd met Our Lady. Uh, perhaps someone might think, this Pope is a heretic. <laughs> but <laughs> nah. no, they should go see a particular medieval capital of a column in the Basilica of St. Mary Magdalene in Vesele, Burgundy. And on that capital, on one side, there is Judas hanged. But on the other side is the Good Shepherd, who is carrying him on his shoulders and is carrying him away. There is a smile on the lips of the Good Shepherd, which I wouldn't say is ironic, but a little complicit. And he keeps a picture of this capital on his desk. Now, of course, Novus Ordo Watch being the uh, Germanic types that they are, went and got the photo. <laughs> and they documented the, <laughs> documented the fact that if you look at the column, there is no indication that this person carrying Judas is the Good Shepherd. He doesn't have a bishop's crook. He doesn't have the same resemblance to our Lord. And if you look at the face, there's not exactly any kind of complicit smile on it. So the fantasy story he told wasn't even a good one. But again, we missed another opportunity to canonize someone, Your Excellency. Judas. Yes, yes. St. Judas. Yes, St. Judas Iscariot. We could put him in the litany. <laughs> and uh, the... Um, no, it, it's... You know, this man is is completely, uh, completely off. I mean, he's saying this in order to really deny hell ultimately and to deny retribution for sin. I mean, all of the, uh, first of all, there's words of our blessed Lord in sacred scripture indicating that he was lost. It would be better that he had never been born. And the fathers are in in. Yeah, and theologians, everyone assumes that he lost his soul. I mean, it, it has it's not been defined by the church. The church never defines that anyone is in hell. 
but the evidence is overpowering and it's, it's so much embedded in tradition that he did lose his soul because he despaired, not because of the sin he committed, but because he despaired of seeking repentance, of seeking mercy from Christ and showing up at the foot of the cross and asking for forgiveness. That's why he went to hell. You know, so, you know, but to, to extol this person as possibly in heaven and therefore a saint uh, is, you know, just so ridiculous that it really doesn't deserve too much time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, but uh, you are correct, Your Excellency, it is part of the program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because he wants people to draw that conclusion. Yes. And, uh, but I mean, if you look at the capital that he's talking about, which the, uh, by capital we mean the stone carving, you don't see what he's talking about. It's like something he made up. The guy who's the stone figure that's, who's taking the body of Judas away just looks annoyed. <laughs> yes, yeah. it, it, you know, you look at it and you say, "What is he seeing in this?" You know, and, but again, it's a man that doesn't seem to have a lot of brains. Yeah, that's very negative, Your Excellency. Very negative. Yeah, it's plenty negative. I'm a negative person. <laughs> <laughs> No one would disagree with that. Well, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. <laughs> oh, Your Excellency. I think your secretary in Warren said that, oh, he's a marshmallow. Oh, really? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that, that was the... the but the... Um, maybe, a, maybe, a burnt, s- maybe a burnt marshmallow, Father. Well, yeah. yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, a toasted one, yes. But yes. speaking of negative things, if I, I can interject something... Uh, that today, apparently, since you're in Vienna, Stephen, is the feast of the Clemens Brea Hofbauer. Oh, yes. And That's a first-class yeah, feast he, for the, uh, the diocese, I think. Mm-hmm. He is a really great saint and a very popular preacher, and the um, uh, government didn't like him one bit, and they sent spies to listen to his sermons. So one of the anecdotes that Bishop Dolan <laughs> said I should mention is that he was preaching uh, one Sunday, and he said the uh, youth of Vienna is so bad that it's not worthy to be taken to the town dump in a wheelbarrow. (laughs) Now, you know, that's a little bit negative, okay? So he was denounced to the police, and he was called in, and uh, they said, listen, buddy, uh, you have to retract that. So he said, okay. So he gets up in the pulpit the next Sunday and says, I have to make a retraction, and I have to tell you that, yes, the youth of Vienna is worthy to be taken to the town dump in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> so <laughs> He was canonized by St. Pius X, you know. Yeah, oh, negative yeah. theology. What can I yeah, say? Yeah, he was plenty negative, too. I mean, oh, uh, capital N. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, you know what a great story. Anyway, on yes, that note, yes. we can we can move on to something about. Uh, well, 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 we're going to continue the, the negativity. Remember that Francis always. There's never a Francis watch that goes by that we don't have to deal with a quote from Francis regarding, let's say, Neo Pelagians and that sort of thing. And he was deciding to talk about confession, which I thought was fascinating because I wonder who goes to confession in the Novus Ordo sect. But he says the the brooms do the brooms. <laughs> there's plenty of there's plenty of brooms in there. <laughs> the brooms and the pails, the sponges, the mops. So this is they are they always spend a in w- there. A lot of time in the confessional. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. 
This was on the 27th of February at the Casa Santa Marta Morning Mass. And if uh, Your Excellency and Father would just bear with me, the quotes are worth it. A confessor... <laughs> A confessor is like a father of a small child who has pulled a prank and he has to correct him. And he knows that if he approaches him with a stick in hand, things will not go well. He has to approach with trust and confidence. He warned, there are no threats in the confessional, only forgiveness. He goes on to say, in this passage, this is how the Lord calls us. Come on, let's have a coffee together. Let's talk this over. Let's discuss it. <laughs> Don't be afraid, I'm not going to beat you. And I thought that might be a variation. Uh, Though your sins be as dark as coffee, they will be as light as a latte, maybe, is what he uh, <laughs> wanted to... Although, the, although my uh, remark right away was a comment like that shows that he deserves excommunication latte sentencia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what an idiot to reduce a sacrament to something so commonplace and something so purely human as having a cup of coffee with someone, uh, which is obviously that, that implies that's like a social occasion. So he reduces a sacrament to that level. And I guess one could say it's typical because they have no sense of the, uh, no sense of the supernatural. I mean, Your Excellency, do not teach your, your, your seminarians to threaten people in confession. Oh, to use whips, <laughs> bring in whips. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't know where this person is coming from, but, you know, a priest is, is natural or supernaturally disposed to being as nice as he can to draw the sinner back. I mean, the, uh, it's only when the sinner puts up a, a fight, essentially, uh, where he refuses to to accept what he must accept and avoid the occasions of sin, that the priest has to become stern with him and say, oh, I can't give you absolution. But in no case would a priest yell at you or, or you know, it's all a very on a very high level. I mean, it's just simply, I can't absolve you because you need to, to do some penance. I mean, that's about as rough as it's going to get. But uh, no, you know, if a sinner is there, that's already something. I mean, you're happy that he's in there. Uh, and your approach to him is as, is as, you know, let's say delicate as it can be. And you have to take into consideration the condition of the sinner and everything. Uh, but uh, I mean, no priest that is that is has his head screwed on right would ever, you know, uh, be abusive in the confessional. I mean, it's just just not done. I mean, uh, and so I don't know what world he is living in. You know, where that, uh, where you know, you don't hear priests yelling at people in the confessional or anything like that. I never did. It's usually the people that are yelling at the priest. You know, yeah. in some cases, yeah. you know, they're they're saying, uh, you know, but uh, the. Um, no, it, it's it's just now. Don't forget, these are people, this clergy, this novice order clergy that accompanies sinners in their sin. That you know, that this idea of accompaniment. Well, you know, we'll walk with you in your adultery, and and you know, they don't believe in conversion from sin. They just believe in accompanying people as they sin. It's like accompanying someone as he's walking off a pier. You know, we'll walk you down, and you fall into the into the the sea. You know, uh, and uh, so, and the, these people don't they don't believe in hell. Anything supernatural ha has been abandoned by them. So confession becomes simply a place where you talk things over, and the priest will probably tell you, well, you know, if you're seeing other women or something like that, well, you know, sometimes that's necessary for 
for uh, you know the general well-being of the family or, or you know who knows what they're telling them they for years they've been telling them to practice birth control or permitting them to practice birth control saying absolutely nothing when that is when that is confessed if it is confessed i mean the proof positive of that is the fact that something like 90% of people who call themselves catholics believe in artificial birth control and use it you know if they're of childbearing age you know that has to go back to the clergy. These are clergy who condone people's sins. So this is what you know we're dealing with here. This is not Catholic clergy. These are these are some other sect. You know some some sect that uh, uh, you know has abandoned the Catholic faith. There's a um, uh, neocon um, Jesuit writer, an older Jesuit named Father Schall, who writes for. Uh, uh, writes on the internet, and he, in fact, did an article for Crisis Magazine uh, today on this. And he says that the notion of this accompaniment is that it is uh, neutral. And that's precisely why it is ambiguous and dangerous and ought to be rejected. That it gets around the uh, notion of an objective, uh, objective moral law. But that's what, in his opinion, is designed to do. So it's interesting that some people do see this. Some people in the Novus Ordo establishment, they feel funny about it and can't quite articulate it, but some of them can. Mm -hmm. They know where it's going, but then, of course, they never draw the logical conclusion. No. Hmm. That's interesting that you mentioned Father Shaw. I've always thought of him more as a culture warrior father. He's actually a valid priest. He was ordained in the correct ordinal by a valid bishop. But oh, yeah, uh, yeah. for him to come out to argue theological things, I think uh, you know it's a sign. He, he normally stays in, in the cultural literature uh, phase. Yeah, the other thing I think of when I hear the term uh, is the accompaniment. Well, uh, I accompany the choir all the time. But the, 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 the notion is that who takes the lead? Someone else takes the lead. The director takes the lead. So the whole notion of the term, uh, as is applied here, is that you're, you're sort of along for the ride and someone else is really directing, um, uh, really directing what's going on. Yes. Uh, but that, that's how they play with these uh, buzzwords. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, speaking about uh, birth control, as His Excellency had talked about, a, and drawing the logical conclusion, there's a story that a Novus Ordo theologian is arguing that couples may be required to use contraception. Your Excellency, your Father, did you read about this? Yes, yes, I did. Uh, yeah, same here, yeah. It makes all the sense in the world based on Amoris Laetitia that uh, just as adultery may be necessary in order to hold the family together, therefore making circumstances alter the natural law. Therefore, the natural law may also be altered and even demanded that it be altered by circumstances. In other words, that it is necessary for the common good to practice birth control. Because here again, the, the point is that the natural life of man is the highest good. So holding the family together is the highest good, not the, not the glory of God and not the law of God, not obedience to the law of God, but the, the natural life of man, which is typically socialist and, and humanitarianism, humanitarian, which is you know, the, the goal of the whole modern world, the secularist society and, 
and uh, you know, making a religion out of helping man. That's, uh, that's so typical of the Novus Ordo and so typical of, of all of modern morality, that the life of man on this earth is the most important thing. And if you've abandoned the principle that there's the, the certain things are objectively grave in themselves, uh, you know, uh, why not? Why can't it be dictated by circumstances? But to go back to something earlier, you know, the um, Chinese government had uh, the one-child policy. So uh, the thing is that um, one would, uh, uh, if you have any... Uh, uh, brains in your head, you can see exactly how oppressive that is, but um, you can see then a justification from the point of view of the Novus Ordo, so-called moral theology, justifying that because of uh, all things as it were are equal and nothing is, is objectively a mortal sin, mm -hmm. that uh, are intrinsically grave, intrinsically evil. Once you admit an exception to something that is intrinsically evil, you blow up the whole principle. Sure. As the, the whole building comes down. It's just uh, nothing is left once you admit an exception to something which is intrinsically evil. Well, alongside this, for the first time, the Vatican has put out an anti set of a contest book. Father Chicada, did you hear? <laughs> did, did you hear about this? <laughs> Yes, I heard about it, but I mean, why put out an anti-state of a contest book? The stuff that Bergoglio says, as I always say, it's like there's a state of a contest comedy writer in the, the basement of the Vatican uh, who's, who's next to the double of Paul VI and the Benedict XVI, and he's imprisoned there writing out crazy things for Bergoglio to say so people can say, well, uh, uh, you know, will they still believe he's a true pope after this? <laughs> I mean, yes. but, uh, uh, on a more serious note, uh, the, uh, uh, the fact that something like this appears in, uh, you know, the mainstream is an indication that, uh, you know, we may just be making a dent. We may just be making a dent. Oh, absolutely. Your Excellency? <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, to, to, it's like sending out the, the troops against the peasants. You know, the, uh, if the, <laughs> the peasants are gathering together, you need to shoot them down. And, and uh, the, uh, it's the same. You, you, wouldn't, you would never have seen that under Pius XII or Pius XI or any of the Catholic popes. I mean, it would, you know, just be non-existent. But, uh, but, you know, even besides ourselves, uh, there are a lot of what you call Novus Ordo conservatives who are at least questioning it and, and bringing the point up and looking at what we're saying. Uh, he gives, you know, the, the best book in favor of Sedevacantism is Bergoglio's speeches and the Acta Apostolis J. <laughs> Sedis. That's the best thing you can say for it. Uh, so, you know, and a lot of people are, are grappling with this problem and, you know, behind the, in the back of their minds, they, you know, maybe the state of Acantus are right. What they don't understand is that the problem is not Bergoglio as such. The problem is Vatican II. Yes. Vatican II is the deviation from Roman Catholicism. And everyone's upset and worried about Bergoglio. And, and he's just the icing on the cake, as I said. He's the logical outcome of Vatican II. He is doing nothing that is not in conformity with and compatible with Vatican II. And they always miss the boat. They do not see it. But at least they are 
waking up somewhat. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the purpose of that book is that, uh, in fact, Bergoglio is the Pope and, you know, and so forth. But I think that was written against the Benedictine Saint of Macanthus, right? I thought I thought. I think so, yeah. yes. That the B-16 uh, continues to be the Pope. Yes. Um, the, uh, I say this all the time, and uh, it's true that, you know, within the past two weeks, I've gotten at least three uh, inquiries from people who are in the V2 church about sativacontism. Hmm. And the last one that I got was from someone in, who's actually um, uh, MA in theology uh, and is working on a, a doctorate. And, you know, is, is wondering about all this, that really he would like more information to find out how, uh, you know, how something like this could be possible. So it's in the air. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's in the air with, with um, intellectuals, and it's in the air with kids. I mean, uh, then, you know, at the opposite end of the spectrum, I get correspondence from, from someone who is in... Uh, actually someone who is in high school who is comparing what he saw in the RCIA program, the Novus Ordo Catechism program, uh, with what the church has taught on these different issues in the past, and who, of course, the first thing he does, he goes to Google, and he tries to find out uh, information, and he finds out that, well, maybe he really can't reconcile these two things, and eventually he finds out about sativacontism. So that's how it works. People at different levels do see the contradiction. Mm-hmm. Well, Novus Ordo Watch, which of course is our show sponsor, put photos of the author, uh, Francisco Grana, handing the book to Francis. And underneath the photo, it's written, regardless of the actual content, it is a great satisfaction to know that someone put a book with the word set of a contest on it straight in Francis's face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I, That's right. <laughs> I, the caption, I think, for the photo as he's pointing to the book uh, would be something like, we are not amused. Uh, Fran- <laughs> Francis, Fra- Francis doesn't look too happy with it. I think we could run a caption contest for this one, you know, yeah. as a little bit of a fundraiser. Uh, maybe my submission would be Sativacontism meets Mentevacontism, <laughs> you know. <laughs> For those who, who for those who are not yet following Father Chicada on Twitter, he's at F R C A K A D A, and he does a lot of these caption contests. Uh, you should not miss them. Um, well, we're we're into the the last part of our of our show today, Your Excellency and Father, and this is the et cetera portion in which we discuss things that are tangentially related to Francis, but our listeners may be interested in in getting a take on. And the first is that the SSPX general chapter is on the horizon. And I've learned over the years that in my my youth, uh, you know, five minutes ago, I thought that there would be changes in general chapter meetings because there was an opportunity for, for things. And there's some... There's some scuttlebutt going around that Bishop Fillet doesn't want to be reelected or he would turn down a nomination, but it seems that there are some there's some maneuvering going on before this summer. And I don't know if Your Excellency or Father had a chance to to look at any of that. Although I imagine you have a rather dim view of the whole thing. 
Well, I mean, when you say you have an opportunity to express your opinion, I mean, it's it's the same as you would, you know, at the party congress in <laughs> communist China. Who's who's the, the premier again um, of communist China? I mean, uh, you know, he he is is on the track to be sort of the uh, president and great helmsman for life. But I doubt really that necessarily this will uh, mean any uh, radical changes for the Pius X society. They have purged everyone that would be against the line of Bishop Fellay. Yeah. So you know, certainly someone, either he, if he can, I don't know if they have a term limit, but either he will be reelected or somebody like him will be reelected. But they have been purging people all along and sending them to various awful parts of the planet if they don't uh, yeah. go along. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't think anything really different will, will happen. I think they are just biding their time waiting for Bergoglio to die uh, because obviously things have come to a, a, a grinding halt with him. And, uh, you know, looking forward to the next uh, false pope in order to try to patch up things and, you know, get legitimized. Uh, so, but they're still they're, they're still on course because locally, the, um, the Pius X Church locally is down in Walton, Kentucky, and it's sort of turning into another St. Mary's. You know, people are moving there from other parts of the country. Uh, the um, uh, recently, in fact, the day after uh, Bishop Selway's consecration in Florida. The Novus Ordo Bishop of Covington paid a visit, apparently he was invited, to the uh, school in the church in Walton, Kentucky, and was very favorably received by the clergy down there and the school children uh, sang, you know, little songs for him uh, to, to uh, welcome uh, the uh, diocesan bishop. And the prior father, it's some uh, Musha, something like that. He said that it's a well, you know, he this this guy is our bishop, so uh, you know that's the least we can do to welcome him. So uh, there's not that obey little, him or that anything, little, but welcome him. Oh no, come on, you know, uh, <laughs> forget it. Submit but to him. Then, uh, the uh, you submit? Mm, I don't think so. No. But then the uh, it, it turns out that also one of the uh, what's his name the the uh, naturally the American district superior is not an American. He is a German. Is Father Wegner or something like that? And so Father Wegner went for a little <laughs> visit to Walton, and um, uh, Father Wegner went to bish, uh, visit the bishop of the diocese too. Uh-huh. So that that was all uh, you know, nice and uh, uh, nice and cozy. So the thing is that they still make steps in uh, this particular direction. Uh, you know, the, and this is part of the, uh, I guess, part of the FLA program, part of the party line. Yes. So you're up to date on that, on uh, developments in Kentucky. Yes. The reason that some people have brought this up, uh, Your Excellency and Father, is there was a article published in The Angelus in December of last year by Father Dominique Bourmond, in which there was claimed that there is a Father wrote, there is a real danger if the SSPX ignores the Pope and bishops. The danger is that the SSPX may be turning our small communities into religious ghettos if it refuses to exhibit the proper respect to the ecclesiastical superiors. 
Father Bormon claims that to refuse. <laughs> Father Bormon claims that to refuse the we're, proper... We're going to laugh this one out. <laughs> go, go, go ahead. Father, Father, I've got to control myself. <laughs> Father Bormon claims that to refuse the proper respect to the Pope would mean the SSPX has, in effect, fallen into sedevacantism, which we know is the worst possible thing in the world. The SSPX would adopt a schismatic attitude if it doesn't make a deal with Rome, he implies. A deal with Rome is essential to keeping the SSPX from sliding into a schismatic, dangerous ghetto mentality as the resistance has. And so the Angelus is ostensibly well, putting this out uh, to maybe put out a trial balloon or to see what people's reactions are. Yeah. And Bormo, I mean, he's, he's one of the uh, brainless party linemen from way back. Yes, yes. And so I think that floating it through him, that this may be the indication of the new party line and that he's allowed to put this in the uh, American equivalent of Pravda, the party newspaper, <laughs> uh, to, you know, float this, float this particular balloon to signify to the... Um, uh, to the cadres of the party, exactly which way they're supposed to go. Yes. So it is interesting. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yes, the fact that they're holding out a, a state of vacantism as the alternative to making a deal with the modernists is significant because that's like the bottom of the pit. That's like the... the yeah, yeah. You could not go any lower than to be a state of vacantist. I mean, you don't even want to mm -hmm. say the word. It's like the S word. It's so terrible. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to be a state of Acantus. Well, nobody wants to be a state of Acantus, so we must do this. That's the, the implication. So, uh, uh, but, you know, they are in the practical order, state of Acantus, that business of respect for the Pope and all. I mean, you submit to popes, you know, that, I mean, it's absurd, you know, that, that you're going to speak nicely about him and, and you know, call him the Holy Father. That that is sufficient to to make yourself a Catholic. That's a lot of nonsense and garbage. It's condemned precisely by Pius IX. You know that by mere lip service, you 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 know expect to be reconciled to the Church. Lip service to the Holy Father and and just some superficial respect for him. You have to submit. You have to obey. And he said that you know a a long term and systematic disobedience is schism. So, you know, if Bergoglio is the Pope, they're already in schism uh, from, that, from that perspective. And, and uh, they, uh, you don't make deals with Popes. You submit to them and you, you do what they tell you to do. I mean, the whole, the whole thing is all messed up and weird. What an extraordinary idea, Your Excellency. I thought that's exactly what you're supposed to do, is negotiate with the Vicar of Jesus Christ on Earth. <laughs> right, right. Uh, <laughs> right. Yes, remember Boniface VIII said that it's necessary <laughs> yes. for the salvation of every creature to negotiate with the uh, yes. uh, vicar of Jesus Christ on earth, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and I'm teaching church history and uh, there have been attempts at this in the past where various heretics would want some sort of accommodation. And Rome just absolutely no. I mean, just you know, any any idea of watering down Catholic doctrine was forbidden. There was a famous case of something called the Heneticon, which the emperor wanted signed by all of the bishops, because and you know the pope was supposed to go in on it too. It was a document which was not in itself heretical, but which did not was not explicit about Catholic doctrine, and it was meant to unite the Monophysite heretics with the Catholics in his empire. 
And the, the Catholics would have nothing to do with it, even though it was not heretical in itself. It said nothing heretical. But it was one of these, uh, you know, uh, neutral things, you know, and, and one of these documents that could go both ways. And the Pope absolutely forbade it, too. So, you know, these, these attempts to, to deal with heretics and schismatics was always uh, rebuffed by the church. Yeah. The other thing on the question of Pius X in the general chapter, we pointed this out before, is that sooner or later they're going to have to uh, deal with the question of bishops. Yes. Because Bishop Atissier is old, and the uh, other fellows, while not as old, are getting older and have to run around the world. Yes. So sooner or later that issue is going to come up. We'll see, you know, uh, uh, Operation Survival 2 or whatever they, they, they called it before. Yes. You know, the Survivor, wasn't that a reality show? Uh, but I, with Pius X, it's not a reality show generally. But they, they're going to have to do something. You know, and that's yes. just the years roll on. Yes, they do. And uh, Bergoglio seems like he's in great health. He could go on for another five years easily. And, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he uh, moves fast and everything. He's energetic. Yes. And, you know, we've all known old people like that. We've had parishioners like that yes. who were energetic, you know, even up to like an, the age of 90. Yes. You know, so yes. that's, uh, you know, grant him many years. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's what they pray for. They sing the, you know, the Dominus Conservateum. Yeah, yeah. At benediction, may the Lord preserve him. And, you know, they probably have their fingers crossed behind them, like, you know. <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, or, they at, or they aspirate a known in somewhere yeah, in there. Yes. Um, known conservative. <laughs> but, but, but speaking of the SSPX in Kentucky, Father Paul Robinson had an unfortunate uh, event happen with his new book that came out. Father Chicada, did you follow this story? Uh. <laughs> Uh, yes, if you follow my blog, you'll see that I followed the uh, story actually quite closely. The uh, story is Father Paul Robinson actually was a former Feniite from down in Kentucky. And in fact, I had uh, been responsible for his conversion from Feniism many, uh, many years ago. And he was interested in the priesthood but, and convinced by the Sede Vacante position, but he decided that he would go into the Pius X Society because they were a big organization, okay? So in any event, he ended up as a, uh, one of their, their teachers down in Australia, the Holy Cross Seminary in Australia. So he wrote a book deciding that he would try to reconcile traditional Catholic theology with, you know, the latest findings of uh, uh, the theories of scientists about the world, etc. And, you know, this is not a bad idea, you know. I mean, you examine these things and you see how theology would respond. Well, in any event, he consulted a priest in the Noah's Ordo establishment, a priest named Father Hafner, who had written on some of these issues, and he got Father Hafner to look at this book, uh, and the manuscript that he had written. Uh, you know, again, you know, see what someone says is, is not a bad idea. But what happened is Father Hafner ended up writing a preface to the book, uh, I guess recommending the book. But 
the uh, sort of sting in the tail of, of the scorpion was that Father Hafner uh, referred to Paul VI as Blessed Paul VI and JP II as uh, Saint John Paul II. Well, this uh, got um, that will not stand, uh, Father. Father. That will not no, stand. Oh, that will not stand. You yeah. ripped the because... garments at that point. Ripped the garments. <laughs> <laughs> they, that someone has just just uh, gored the party line. Now, of course, Father Hafner, probably somewhat following standard theology on the question of the Pope, regards JP two as a saint because when someone says someone is a saint, or if a Pope says someone is a saint, yeah, well, generally, you know, we have to say that he is. And that's the uh. post, pre and post Vatican II doctrine. So what happened is this is like the third rail for poor Father Robinson. <laughs> so uh, the, the book was promoted by the Angelus and he has to do the equivalent of a mea culpa or uh, so Father Robinson has to uh, say that, well, unfortunately he was not able to express his adherence to the position of the society on the doubtful nature of the canonizations, okay? Because the party line in the society is that the canonizations of, or beatifications of people who were uh, opposed to Archbishop Lefevre, such as Paul VI and John Paul II, are not real canonizations. No. So he had, uh, so the promotion for this book uh, by the Angelus is hilarious. It says that, well, Father Robinson was not able to express his adherence to the position of the society of St. Pius X on the doubtful nature of the canonizations. Then he goes on to say that, well, the appearance of blessed and saint beside Paul VI and John Paul II in the foreword should in no way be construed as an acceptance by Father Robinson of the modernist canonizations or a deviation from his publicly expressed opinions on that subject or the position of the Society of St. Pius X. Wow. So <laughs> the, I thought that this was absolutely hilarious because you know that if you're in the society and you're caught with something like this, that it's time to get out the white cassock because you're going to be sent to, you know, some missionary country and uh, to be punished for it, you know. So you get your malaria shots topped up. <laughs> so I, I don't know if this will be the fate now of poor Father Robinson, exactly what will happen to him. But it's, it's so weird, uh, it's, it, the, the idea that the positions of the society sort of trump everything. Yes, yes. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely typical. Yes. It's absolutely typical on something like this. So you know that what counts is the line of the society. And Bishop Sanborn, uh, then Father Sanborn, said uh, said this uh, in 1984 in an article, the crux of the matter, that you have to zig when they zig and zag when they zag and <laughs> pretend not to notice. And if you show yourself loyalty to any principle beyond the position of the society, you'll find yourself on the outside. Yes. You have to. The most awful thing that could happen to you is that you zig when they zag. Yeah. And then, as Father says, then it's the boondocks. Then you get zinged at that point, I think. Zinged. I mean, that statement yeah. that they put in sounds like something that Stalin's Politburo would put out for somebody in the government who has disappeared, <laughs> you know, that is no longer heard from yeah. again. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> it's that, that he's been sent for re-education. Yeah, yes, you know, he's yes. been ruralized during the, and this takes us back to China again and the Cultural Revolution. That you know he's put the wrong thing up on Democracy Wall, yes. and he's been uh, uh, sent out to pick beets. Well, for those of you who are not familiar with the writings of His Excellency or Father, you can find Father's blog at fatherchicada.com, and he also has some work at sggresources.org, and His Excellency blogs as well, but a lot of his old writings, as Father Chicada referred to, uh, the crux of the matter, can be found at traditionalmass.org. That entire statement, the entire scenario of the Angelus promoting the book and then having to put out that statement is, is, as they would say in Vienna, completely verrückt. And uh, <laughs> it reminds me Crazy. of a, a younger Father Chikada, uh in response to saying that if uh, you had to be told to not believe in God by your superiors, that you would do it out of holy obedience. That this was uh, verrückt. And uh, yes. it's, uh, it's in the same, same line. Yes. Unsurprisingly, the Catholic Herald has reported a rise in annulment requests I can't imagine why, Your Excellency. <laughs> no. No. Uh, well, what do we say? The, the, um, first of all, just the condition of society makes marriage go on the rocks. Feminism and various other movements where it's impossible to, to if you really follow all the rules, the modern rules, it's impossible to really have a marriage uh, and have an, an organized familial society. That's impossible. So it's not uh, of any surprise that, that our more marriages are breaking up. And of course, the invitation is out from the point of view of the Novus Ordo to get annulled uh, and to move on. Uh, you know, so it, you know, yes, it makes perfect sense. Uh, the other hand with this is um, when I saw this, my thought was save your 500 bucks paying for the annulment process that, I mean, with Amoris Laetitia, uh, Laetitia, you don't need uh, really to go through that necessarily. You just find someone who will accompany you for free. Yeah, why do all yes. that paperwork? And, that, and you have a discernment. Yeah. You have a discernment. Uh, you, you sit down with your estranged spouse and you say, you know, do you really think that we should stay together? And he or she says no. And then you have a discernment and the Holy Ghost comes and, and that's it. So why do you need that? Then you can go commit adultery and somebody will accompany you and you, it might even be necessary to commit adultery in order to hold the family together. Yeah. That's Amores Laetitia or Adulteri Laetitia, the joy of adultery. Yeah. Remember we, uh, that um, this uh, uh, neocon professor uh, uh, Kwasniewski, who is also a very good church musician, he uh, writes on these different topics, and he said, I think again in Crisis Magazine, that the people who are in favor of uh, Morris Letizia should be called the Amorites. <laughs> well, you should explain who the Amorites the, were. The, the, one of the barbarian tribes that the Israelites had to fight against in, uh, in the Holy yes. Land, the Amorites, yes. and which is a very good line. Yes. Um, After the annulment process, the thing is that even if you strike out uh, with the annulment process, the ultimate court of appeal is still this accompaniment process. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, you know, it's win-win. But they won't strike out. The Novus Order will annul practically anybody. Sure. No. You just got to gotta pay your money. Uh, speaking of... Pay- Even that. Well, that. speaking of paying your money, there, there's probably a membership fee to join the World Council of Churches, and it looks like that Francis will be sending a representative, uh, or actually I think he's going himself to Geneva in June of this year, to participate in the festivities for the 70th anniversary of the founding of the so-called World Council of Churches. Your Excellency, what is the Catholic Church's attitude towards bodies like the World Council of Churches? It absolutely condemns the the ecumenical movement. That was a product of the ecumenical movement. You have to understand that Protestants since since the 16th century have been attempting to put themselves back together. They are the classical Humpty Dumpty that has fallen off the wall. And so for centuries, they have been trying to find some common ground amongst themselves and to uh, consider themselves in communion one with another. As a matter of fact, that's where partial communion came in. That was from um, that theologian Kuhlmann, who, uh, the Protestant theologian, who was a personal friend of Ratzinger's. That, that is a Protestant principle that we agree with you 50%, so we're in partial communion with you. See, whereas the church never spoke in the past about partial communion. Either you're in the church or you're out. Uh, and so, you know, this is something that is, I mean, it might be a nice pastime for Protestants because, you know, yeah, you know, they have the embarrassment of saying that we are the Christian church, but we're divided up into, you know, hundreds and hundreds of little sects. And, you know, so you know, that's their problem. You know, how do we call ourselves, you know, this, how do we represent the Christian church? authentically when we look like this and so for the catholic church to have anything to do with that is a betrayal of the very notion of the true church the one true church the one thing for those protestants to do as Pius XI said is to come back to the catholic church and uh, cardinal patrizzi also in the 19th century said the same thing under Pius IX. you know if you're looking for christian unity well there's a way to do that and that is to come and make your submission to the roman pontiff and accept the catholic faith the um, topic of joining the World Council of Churches was something that uh, I remember coming up way back when in the 60s and 70s. And there was a hesitation uh, on the part of the modernist Vatican uh, still to get involved. And I think that it was a question of, uh, once again, as Cranmer said, running ahead too fast. Mm-hmm. That uh, the time wasn't ripe and that you still would have had people around who would have remembered how horrible an idea this was. And they would have remembered the pre-Vatican II attitude toward ecumenism and would have remembered, at least in large part, the traditional ecclesiology. So at that point, it simply wasn't ripe. But now with Bergoglio, remember, his idea is that, well... Um, let's get together and be nice, and if there are theological problems, well, the theologians, we can put them on an island and they can work that one out, uh, you know, together. So uh, the whole atmosphere now is ripe for uh, getting involved in this because, remember, he doesn't care about doctrine, that the idea of doctrine or anything is a a, uh, detail. It's Pelagian. Uh, And that... 
uh, is Pelagian, and that uh, you know it, the important thing is that you all have uh, encounter with Christ, whatever, or an encounter with Jesus. They don't say Christ too much. No. Encounter with Jesus, and that's the that's really the uh, important thing that you experience this encounter. You know, maybe in each other, and uh, don't sweat the small stuff. It's all small stuff. Mm-hmm. The last thing that we're going to speak about today is how Francis deals with resistance. He says, there are doctrinal resistances that you know about better than I. For my own good, I do not read the content of internet sites of this so-called resistance. I know who they are. I know the groups, but I do not read them for my own mental health. If there is something very serious, (laughs) if there is something very serious, they tell me about it so that I know. You know them. It is displeasing, but you have to go on. Historians tell us that it takes a century for a council to put down its roots, and we are halfway there. <laughs> so Francis doesn't read Novus Ordo Watch, Your Excellency. Uh, uh, he probably looks at it in secret, though. <laughs> I'm sure he does. Just to wonder what the opposition is saying. <laughs> yes, yes. Or I'm sure he has somebody looking at it to tell him what's going on. But I'm actually surprised that he even gives that much attention to it that he would even talk about it. You know, it shows that it's on his mind. Yes, it does. He, he might be protesting too much, you're saying. Yes, yes, yes. He might be a Protestant too much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, remember with, uh, with all of this again that, the, uh, that in his little pea brain mind, the important thing is to keep the mess going. The Leo, remember he talked about that at the beginning, that, uh, you know, make a mess because you get ferment. And with the modernists, it's out of this ferment that you get the doctrinal evolution. So the fact that, you know, people are criticizing him, he wouldn't necessarily regard as a bad thing, that it's part of this mix that's, uh, you know, going to ferment and, uh, you know, result in more modernist mold spores to contribute to the the modernist sourdough, to make the sourdough arise, you know. So (laughs) if you want to use an analogy, uh, and that, uh, you know, you dip this into the, the latte coffee that you're sharing, uh, you know, with, with uh, <laughs> your savior at the coffee house. So it's, but uh, the, so much of it is the wild stuff is to continue the mess. And I don't think that your uh, Novus Ordo conservatives uh, or would-be traditionalists have really gotten onto this, that this is how these guys uh, operate. This is how they keep things moving. We were subjected to that in, uh, you know, the modernist seminaries in, in uh, uh, you know, in our Balmy youth. And this is, this is how these people get to the next stage of the revolution. Speaking of Balmy youth, <laughs> we're recording today on March 15th, and that was on March 15th, 1971, that I first met with Archbishop Lefebvre in New York. No kidding. Wow. Yes, this is an anniversary. Yes, so that's, what, 40-some years, 40... Almost 50 years. Wow. Almost. Isn't that something? Yes. Do you have any particular recollections yes. of that you like to... Uh, it's an interesting topic. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, you know, he was always a very impressive figure. So, you know, he was no ordinary bishop. And yeah. uh, uh, he, um, he was... 
on his way out to Covington, as a matter of fact, in the hope of getting his uh, his uh, group established in that diocese. And uh, so, you know, it was a stop in New York to see myself and future Father Anthony Ward and future Father and now Bishop Clarence Kelly. And so we were the three in New York, and uh, we talked about the whole situation in the church. Um, you know, he talked about retaining the traditional mass and um, and uh, saying that, uh, you know, that they didn't have the right to suppress it and all that. And uh, because uh, then seminarian Clarence Kelly brought up the question, well, what about the law, you know? And he said, well, they don't have the right to suppress it. You know, so that, that that's sort of... Uh, uh, but at the time, you know, when we were all in these modernist seminaries and nobody was doing anything, and the whole thing seemed to be just going down the drain, he was a great lamp in the dark room. Yeah. You know? I mean, uh, we, you know, it just that somebody was saying that Vatican II was wrong and, and we have to do something about this problem in the church. So, I mean, we were very satisfied by that at the time, you know, but we didn't think about some of the things that would later become problematic. And, you know, one of those things is how do you resolve disobedience to the Pope with tradition? You know, that's, that's, uh, that would become more and more, that would fester in that society, you know, and, and, uh, and then they would come up with responses to that. They essentially recognize and resist and sift the magisterium, which, and then seek a, a deal with the Vatican, all of those things. Uh, which uh, became a very theologically problematic for us later on, you know, in, in the 80s, uh, as they pursued that deal with the Vatican, which they're still pursuing. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so that that's uh, it. Just you know, it, it, I can remember sitting at the table and and talking to him. It's a fascinating uh, bit of history. Uh, it really is uh, that uh, your involvement at that point. I've often thought that people may not make the geographical connection, but Covington is just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. And the, uh, I forget the name of the bishop there, but he was, uh, I think, part of... It was Ackerman, wasn't it Ackerman? Yeah, uh, it may have been, and he was... was, At the time. He was part of the Chaitus, and he was uh, at Vatican II, and he was known as a conservative, and he was, in effect, sort of a buddy of Archbishop Lefebvre. And I've often thought... He was in the same order. He was in the same... uh, Oh, he was. He he was a Spiritan, Holy Ghost Father. CSSP, Ah. yes. But I've often thought how different the history of the society would have turned out if Lefebvre had been able to locate in Kentucky. <laughs> I mean, uh, you yes. know, imagine that and having his stronghold in yes. the United States and having uh, the seminarians adopt uh, sort of Kentucky culture instead of uh, French culture, which would have been quite a bit diff- different. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that that uh, I, I, I can see, and we'll kid our Kentucky friends about this, about society priests then would have to ride around in the back of trucks an awful lot, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and carry handguns. <laughs> but alas, it was not to be. We ended up in, in bleak, old, uh, bleak old Switzerland. <laughs> The one well, later he told me that the only thing that Bishop Ackerman wanted to talk about was his dog. <laughs> that when Archbishop Lefebvre brought up anything, that the conversation would turn to his dog. So that was uh, yeah, not very, you know, yeah, that was something. The, the one, productive. The one yes. other anecdote I remember the Father Kelly telling me 
uh, is that Archbishop Lefebvre was really amazed by the American practice of having a salad bar. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have been quite French, too. So, <laughs> Right, well, remember, in France, the chef knows everything, and you're simply presented with your food. There's not really a discussion about uh, your desires. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yes. It's, it's yes. sort of ex alto, orient's ex alto. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so very good. Well, just to let our listeners know, as always, Your Excellency and Father, thanks for your time. I just wanted to check in. The number of bishops at Most Holy Trinity Seminary has doubled since our <laughs> since your last appearance on Francis Watch, yes. uh, Your Excellency. So finally, I can say there's something new at the seminary. You always say, you know, what's what's new at the seminary? Well, we have something really big new, <laughs> and that is that I consecrated a bishop, and uh, together with Bishop Dolan and Bishop Stiver. Uh, in a magnificent ceremony. People are still talking about it. A uh, four-hour ceremony that was just absolutely stunning. And uh, thanks to the efforts of many, many people. And uh, uh, not myself. And uh, so, uh, yes, that's what was new. That's new. Everything else is dull and routine besides that. <laughs> same old classes, same old cassocks. Yes. Same old yes. chores. Everything is same cats. Everything the same, same, you know, everything the same, <laughs> which is beautiful. Uh, you can read about the consecration. Uh, eventually, we're going to put a film up, uh, but you can read about the consecration. I did an article and a little photo presentation. Uh, it gives you some of the details on fatherchicada.com. And um, so you, you can see a little bit of uh, kind of what went on. It, it was, uh, in fact, splendid. Yes. It really was a very happy yes. day for us all. Yes, yes. Uh, meanwhile, at uh, St. Gertrude the Great, actually there, uh, there's a point that we really didn't hit in the Francis Watch, but is uh, for us here is very interesting. Uh, of course, the whole um, idea behind preserving the traditional pre-1955 Holy Week and the people who campaigned for it, uh, one of the primary instigators of that was the young seminarian Daniel Dolan back in the uh, uh, 1970s. Well, uh, it turns out uh, much to uh, everyone's, I guess, amusement and uh, sort of delight that good ideas do win out sometime, that the Fraternity of St. Peter apparently has permission from the Ecclesia Dei Commission to use the pre-55 Holy Week rite. So we're getting all sorts of, of uh, inquiries, and I got a phone call from someone who wanted to order 500 books, 500 copies of uh, layman's books for the pre-55 Holy Week rite, which we didn't have. But I think it's very interesting that um, the... Uh, that at least on this idea, it seems that people are coming around that the uh, reform, uh, you know, was, was something that, that was put in place beforehand and uh, started out and now are sort of looking backwards to it as, as you know, more logical position when it comes to the liturgy. The uh, second thing that um, is of interest here at St. Gertrude the Great is we are promoting our uh, young adults get-together, and that will take place uh, this summer here at St. Gertrude the Great around the 24th of June, around the Feast of St. John the Baptist, 
and that um, uh, we will were publicizing this on uh, uh, on our particular sites, and uh, you know we would invite you to come if you're interested in this to go to YAG, that's Young Adults Gathering YAG in Cincy. Dot org, that's yaginsinci.org, and uh, find out more information about it. It's uh, uh, geared only towards sedevacantists, and uh, you can find a. Uh, that's that's very that's very negative of you, Father. Very well, negative. you know, exclusive exclusivity. <laughs> it's this. The, the, uh, I haven't been bitten by the Bergoglio bug. Um, uh, although now last year, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that last year. Um, Bergoglio was sort of our YAG publicity guy that we we used him to uh, promote our uh, <laughs> our young adults gathering here. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, you uh, might see something else like that uh, this coming year. Uh, in fact, he even uh, seemed to have appeared miraculously in the background of the group picture that we took at the end of the YAG with. He was among. The uh, I think he was the 51st Yagster, uh, uh, somewhere in the back, probably standing near me somehow. Uh, but so I would. I, I will say, Father, your tweets regarding Bergoglio in this matter were worth the price of admission alone. Well, <laughs> I was the class clown at a cone, so you know <laughs> that's somewhat not surprising. Um, but uh, uh, seriously, the opportunity that you have is excellent for networking and uh, for uh, meeting Catholics uh, who have the same ideas and ideals that you do. And so we uh, invite you to go to yaginsensi.org and uh, to become a follower of mine on Twitter. That sounds so funny. And uh, then we will, um, or uh, as they say, to friend me on Facebook, uh, another awful verb, but it's used, and you can get more information on this, okay? And that's a Cincy, C-I-N-C-Y, for those who are wondering. Yeah, C-I-N-C-Y. Uh, Stephen, you're too old, so forget <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> there, is, there, there, is a, there is an age cutoff, uh, and, and you will find uh, Bergoglio promoting, you'll find photos of Bergoglio promoting the YAG on Twitter, but you won't find him in the vestibule of St. Gertrude the Great. No, definitely, <laughs> definitely not. Other places, yes. No, here, definitely not. <laughs> To His Excellency's point, Father, what is the age range? For no, actually, the, the we, we, we took that away and we said just sort of exercise common sense, um, which is not so common. But I mean, if, if uh, there are people, um, uh, you know, sometimes... Of advanced, of advanced age, as you would say? Of advanced age, yes. uh, Stephen, you know, and uh, I'm not sure if you've started drooling yet, but... <laughs> well, we would have a we would have a special bib for anyone who is drooling. I think so. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Your Excellency, Father, as always, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I, I would like to say that I look forward to Francis Watch. I do not look forward to to trudging through these heresies, but I look forward to hearing Catholic doctrine as expostulated by the two of you. And I know that our listeners benefit because they then have an opportunity to, to refute these errors um, because they've had a chance to, to hear the Catholic position as enunciated by the two of you. And I know that I speak for many, when I, for many promultis, when I say that uh, your contributions are appreciated. So thank you as always for your time. 
Thank you. You're very welcome. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.